please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and find verses 9 to 11 where we'll focus our attention this morning as we're at the midway point of our study we call the pursuit of purity. And today we're going to look at the work of God. And I wonder, have you ever tried something impossible? Occasionally my wife leaves me alone with all five of my offspring. <laughs> Feels impossible. I have no idea how she does that for a living. It's amazing to me. Have you ever tried something impossible? Well, according to most medical advice in the early 2000s, to survive in 33-degree water for more than an hour and have your core temperature not drop below 98 degrees, it was viewed as impossible. I view it as crazy regardless, but... Well, Dutchman Wim Hof, he took that as a challenge. Wim, not on a whim, decided to work up to a Guinness Book of World Records 112 minutes in an ice bath that never rose above 33 degrees while his core temperature never dropped below 98. (laughs) It's crazy. Think about that for a moment. 33 degrees, 112 minutes. No thank you. Wim Hof is nicknamed the Iceman, obviously. He even ran a half marathon barefoot once above the Arctic Circle. What possesses people to be that crazy? I don't know, but he's a legend in circles of cold-loving crazies, accomplishing what I would call impossible. Have you ever tried something impossible? Have you tried to accomplish something impossible? This is how believers often feel when they pursue sanctification. But let me encourage you for a moment. If you've tried to pursue sanctification apart from the work of God, you have indeed tried to accomplish something impossible. There is no hope pursuing sanctification apart from God. You will always fail. But here's what I want you to take away. This is encouraging because God's work in our salvation is evidence that God is working in our sanctification. When you're in the depths of your struggles for purity, your hope must be the work of God, and God never fails. Before we get too far, I want to be clear. Salvation is a monergistic work, meaning God alone accomplishes salvation. Sanctification is a synergistic work, meaning there's fellowship between God and man. Man has a responsibility to pursue the sanctification that God works. But God alone accomplishes our salvation and that work of God and his accomplishing our salvation is all the evidence we need to know that God is also accomplishing our sanctification. But I'm afraid too often believers forget the foundation of their sanctification is the reality of their salvation. And the foundation for their sanctification is the work of God in saving them. That same work of God doesn't stop after saving them, but it continues as they pursue sanctification. So brother and sister, stop pursuing the impossible, which is sanctification without the work 
of God, without the foundation of God's work, especially in your salvation. Instead, pursue purity in the hope and by the power and through the work of God. And we're going to look this morning at this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. We call it 1 Corinthians. But the Corinthians were a people well acquainted with the powerful work of God in salvation and the impossibility of pursuing sanctification in their own power. Paul begins his letter to the Corinthians by calling them what? Do you remember? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. From Paul to who? To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and our sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Now, if you wrote a letter to my grandma, I would expect you to address it in a similar manner. This is not to my grandma. This is to the saints, in quotations, in Corinth. The Corinthians, they had unmentionable debauchery firmly rooted in their congregation. Saints, Paul says. Perhaps a reminder of their context would be helpful. We're not always connected to the audiences of Paul's letters. So how about this? Corinth was a pretty unique city. It was unique in geography. It was unique in culture. It was unique in identity. If we take a look at the world when Corinth was at her zenith, you will find her right in the middle of the most wealthy shipping routes of her day. She was the midpoint between Rome and which is that? The west and the Mediterranean Sea on the east, which would be where the fertile crescent around Jerusalem area makes its connection between Egypt and lower Mesopotamia. All that wealth would go through around Jerusalem to Corinth, to Rome, from Rome to Corinth, to Jerusalem. The city of Corinth was situated right where she needed to be to get super rich. She was on this isthmus that was dividing upper and lower Macedonia. And the sailors, they wanted to get from one side of Corinth to the other. So wouldn't you know, somewhere around 585 B.C., there was a four-mile channel dug through the rock that allowed for shallow boats to float and massive boats to be rolled on logs from one bay to the next. There was the Gulf of Corinth to her west and the calm Gulf of the Saronic to her east. The wild Mediterranean to her south, the island of Crete, nobody wanted to sail near it, and the infamous Cape of Peloponnese were all to her south, so everybody wanted to go right through Corinth. This four-mile canal changed history. Though it was quite laborious to get a ship from one side to the other, it was quite safe. So Corinth was an important place. It made sailors happy. It made vendors and merchants wealthy. And it kept the trade of the Roman Empire running smoothly. Corinth was Greek in geography, but Roman in culture. Did I say something wrong? According to David Garland, an extravagant, gaudy, and dazzling city with its wealth on display was Corinth. Over the topness defined Corinth. Some would say it's just like Hutch. 
Rome because of Corinth's, why are you laugh at that? Come on, be nice. Rome, because of Corinth's importance, made many efforts to secure the city as a Roman-friendly trading center. Well, what did that mean? Other than Roman politicians and the aristocracy in Rome, they would send their representatives or they would send their proxies or they would send their slaves to do business on their behalf in Corinth to make sure they got what they could out of this rich and happening place. The relatively young Corinth didn't have the same societal structure as Rome. The established aristocracy didn't impact the situation socially in Corinth like it did in Rome. So the efforts of all the Corinthians was to do the same thing, climb the social ladder. And because you could be socially mobile in Corinth, which was very different from much of the ancient world, you must be socially mobile in Corinth. Everybody pursued a higher status and position. That's what it meant to be a Corinthian, to be going for it, to be shooting for the stars, to be trying to raise your family's future. And how did you pursue a greater status in Corinth? Well, here's the problem. You pursued it in two ways. You pursued it by wealth. It was accomplished by your massive wealth. And this was accomplished by sex. The more money you had and the more rumors that abounded about your phallic prowess, the more likely you were to be viewed as a somebody. Couple that with a constant influx of money and the variety of religion that came from so many different traders going through and so many base souls in the form of sailors traipsing your four miles of hedonistic cityscape and you had a moral mess. You can imagine Corinth had the best of the worst that the world had to offer. Corinth's Acropolis, which most Greek cities had, Greek cities had an Acropolis, just means a fortified high place. Their, Greeks, their, their Acropolis was a temple for Aphrodite. You probably learned in school at some point that Aphrodite is the goddess of love. That's too kind. Probably be more appropriate to view Aphrodite as the goddess of sleazy sex. The Acropolis rose 2,000 feet above sea level. You're talking about a four-mile isthmus with this channel dug from one bay to the next, and 2,000 feet above it is this Acropolis dedicated to Aphrodite. A clear day and her Acropolis would, view of, would yield a view of Athens that was 45 miles away. So this, everybody could see this temple. And they looked up to it. But every night from the Acropolis out of the temple would come at minimum a thousand priestesses and priests. Today we would call them prostitutes. These temple sex workers would descend into the lower city of Corinth to cast their trade on all the townspeople and the visitors. Corinth was a septic system of human depravity. And Paul thought to himself, this would be a great place to plant a church. If you ever wonder if Paul believed his theology, Corinth is proof. He believed what he preached. And Paul calls these people... Saved by God's work out of the worst the world had to offer. He calls them saints. 
the only explanation is that the work of God enables and empowers a believer's pursuit of purity. Paul staked his ministry on the hope that those whom God saves, God sanctifies. Paul's hope was not in the Corinthians. Your hope should not be in you. Paul's hope was in the work of God. Where is your hope? The work of God enables and empowers a believer's pursuit of purity. Please stand with me and read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, where you will find that's exactly what Paul is teaching. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today feeling the trail of sin from our past, wondering at how you could bring purity to our present. We ask that you help us to see what you have done for us in your work that we call salvation and how it gives us hope and what we call sanctification. I pray that your spirit will afflict the comfortable in their sin and comfort the afflicted as we marvel at what you've done, who we were, and who you've called us to be. Help us, we need it. So we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Notice as we begin, in verses nine to 11, or in verses nine and 10, first we are reminded that the work of God brings truth and clarity. When God speaks, when God works, man understands. So first, the work of God brings truth and clarity. God has made himself clear to all of us. Whether we're talking about creation in Psalm 19 or his word, man understands. And you say, but not all man understands. You're kind of true. They can reject God's truth, but they understand it. Man understands God has made himself clear. That's why Paul begins in verse 9, or do you not know? Specifically, he's talking to believers that you should know these things. This is the same phrase he uses in verse 2, same phrase he uses in verse 3. Because you're a believer, you have to know these things. These are the things that man should know if they're in Christ. This should be common knowledge 
for Christians. Natural man can reject the truth, but even natural man understands enough of the truth to be condemned. But Christians cannot reject the truth. We may not like what it says. It may offend our sensibilities, but we have to understand it. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 addresses unbelievers and how they view the truth. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness reject or suppress the truth. Our responsibility as saints is to know the truth. This is what it means to be a saint. Or do you not know? Paul's saying you should know this. This is simple. This is not Christianity 501. This is just 101. This is day one of class. Those who claim the grace of God has saved us, we must know this truth of God. So Paul says you should know the wicked will not inherit the righteous kingdom of God. God has given you faith to believe. He's given you his spirit to make the Bible clear to believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul already told the Corinthians this. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they're folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. But you have the spirit, so what must you know? What God has said, and he has made it clear. The spirit makes clear the Bible is the inspired word of God, and you must know these things. You don't have to wonder about this. It's hard to hear some of the truths of the Bible, but we must submit to the truths of the Bible because God is speaking through his word. God's word, his work, his spirit, his gift of faith has all been provided to us so that we can understand. God has made himself clear. Second, God has set the standard. What is it that you must know? Well, we see this second phrase in verse 9, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. What is unrighteous? What does it mean for unrighteous to be written here? Well, how about anything but God or his likeness? He alone is perfection. Anything else is unrighteous. This term for unrighteous perhaps is better understood as wicked because it's not merely a lack of righteousness from a neutral individual. Instead, it's, and it's not a lack of moral perfection, but some pursuit. No, it's, it's, it's none of that. It's, it's pursuing the opposite of righteousness. It's wickedness. It's not simply folks mentioned that don't have all the righteousness that they need. It's folks who are pursuing Wickedness instead of unrighteousness. This is the issue. In the greatest hits of human depravity, Romans chapter 3, Paul paraphrases, they're all paraphrased Paul. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Verse 14, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. 16, there's no fear of God before their eyes. That's what wickedness is. Friend, either you're that wickedness or you're righteous. That's it. Don't let moral relativism confuse you. Hitler is not the standard of wickedness. Jesus is the standard of righteousness. Either you're looking like Jesus or you're wicked. 
Either God looks at you and sees the beauty of his son that he sent to die on your behalf to earn your righteousness, or he sees wickedness. You say, but I did, doesn't matter. You say, but I think, are you Jesus to God? Does he look at you and see the righteousness of his son? Why does this matter? Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The inheritance is eternal life with him, his kingdom. The idea of inheritance in our day and age is often a dollar amount or a piece of land. But to Paul's day, especially his background as a Jew, the inheritance was the reputation and the authority and the expression of finally becoming all that was promised to you. The one who inherited the estate became the patriarch of the family. The younger brother didn't get it. The older brother did. The full inheritance. God's kingdom is our forever hope. The fullest expression of our life with him is our inheritance. Understand, friend, third, God will not eternally bless the unrighteous. Do you see the caveats here? Do you see the asterisks? There are none. If you do not have faith in Christ that his death was in your place and his righteousness is for you and his resurrection is your hope, if that is not you, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is a kingdom of righteousness. This is a kingdom owned by God. This is a kingdom ruled by God. It's his kingdom, his rules, his qualifications for entry. Fourth, God has warned his people and his enemies. The most terrifying thing to me about a terrifying day that we call the day of judgment is that there will be no surprises. There will be nobody that can say, but I didn't know. You can suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but you know. God has burned into your conscience the truth of who he is. You can reject it, but you know it. Wickedness as your way of life now will eliminate your hope for heaven. This is a warning. Listen and have life. And just so you're not confused on what unrighteousness or wickedness is, Paul lists us for us all that we need to know. But remember, he's warning us. Notice, middle of verse 9, do not be deceived. What does this mean but that there are those who are deceived or those who are being deceived or those who are deceiving themselves so they can practice the wickedness they would rather have than the Jesus who they claim has saved them Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't fall into this comfortable deception that I'm just fine in my sin. Grace, grace, God's grace. That's why Pastor Hadley leads worship. (laughs) Our flesh, Satan, and his angels who appear to bring truth but ride on the wings of lies and seeking our destruction, they say, you're just fine. God warns us. On judgment day, the excuse that I was deceived will not suffice. The Corinthians seem to imagine that what they knew about Jesus, which would have been a whole lot, Paul spent 18 months with these people. That would have been pretty cool. 
They had good theology. They knew some great stuff. And they thought what they knew was what they needed. They knew about Jesus, so they were good, and they could live in a way that was comfortable to them. As you read the letters to the Corinthians, you find their exuberant hubris on display in a myriad of ways. They thought they were it on a stick. Paul says, hold up. Don't be wicked. Don't be deceived. Perhaps one of the best taught congregations in the early church hears from Paul, watch yourself. Paul's ministry was full of warning. To believers, to unbelievers, Paul would warn anybody with ears. Remember what he told Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, how he described his ministry, Colossians 1, 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Say, oh, surely this warning is to unbelievers. No, Paul says it's to believers. Why? So that he can present you mature in Christ. What does that mean? That you can't be who you were. To the believer, this motivates us to persevere and fight sin and to pursue others in evangelism. To the unbeliever or the one living in these sins, claiming to be a believer, Paul says, you have been deceived. You have bought into the lie. Come as you are and stay that way. Paul says, no, no. You must be maturing into the image of Christ, not falling back into the lifestyle of sin that he saved you from. And then Paul, he provides a grocery list of life-crushing and dominating sins. And notice how the list begins. He says, neither the, and then, and then the list. He, he's trying to say that if, if this is the defining reality in your life, you're on this list. If this is your identity, or your reality, if you're those who define themselves by wickedness, then the kingdom of God is not for you. The kingdom of righteousness is not for the wicked. And who are those people? What defines those people? Paul makes a list, but remember Paul was a Jew before he got saved. This is a paradigmatic list. This is like the Old Testament. It's not, it's not comprehensive like the U.S. Penal Code. It's paradigmatic. It gives us all of these different ways to view the righteousness that God calls us to and the realities of wickedness that we fall into. We begin with those defined by their sexual immorality. This is as broad of a term as absolutely possible. Paul just says married, unmarried, gay men, lesbian, women, bisexual, pansexual, polyamorous, polygamy, bestiality, whatever, trans, you name it, it fits here. This is a drip pan style of sexual depravity. If you're defined by sexual depravity, you're not in Christ. Don't be deceived. Next, idolaters. This isn't merely wooden bobblehead dolls on your shelf that you worship or something like that. Notice how this idolatry, where is it at? It's in the list sandwiched in amongst sexual immorality. Sexual deviances from God's design for sex between one biological man and one biological woman in one marriage. This idolatry was not merely worshiping stuff. It was often worshiping stuff in connection with sexual acts. Remember the prostitutes in Corinth? 
This was a sex-filled pursuit of identifying with something that promised to give you what you wanted. This is just hedonism. I wonder if idolatry, though we often pretend it's so far from us in our culture, I wonder if idolatry might be the best category for pornography. The only quality about pornography that is honest is the selfish nature of it. Why were people idolaters? Because they wanted something. What they wanted, they could have if they did something that they liked to do anyway. They were coveting. Why did they covet? Because they wanted. Why did they want? Well, because they wanted. Who was on the throne? They were. So the truth is, who were they idolizing? Not the piece of wood. Themselves. What did they covet? Money, power, pleasure. What's pornography? What's pornography but the worship of power? You have the illusion of control in the moment. You got what you want when you want it. What is pornography but the worship of pleasure? You have the control to please yourself or surf the web until you find what you're looking for that satisfies you. That's just idolatry. And now the availability of pornography that's free, it's a free trade and sleaze that reshackles the believers to the sins that Christ set them free from. They pursue idolatry instead of freedom in Christ. But believer, if you don't persevere in Christ and you pursue the idolatry of pornography, where is your assurance? That you are, in fact, in Christ. If you don't persevere in Christ, that's because you're not in Christ. It's not because the draw of pornography is greater than the appeal of Christ. Sober up, Christian. Pay attention to the warning that you're getting from Paul. The unrighteousness, those characterized by wickedness, those pursuing wickedness, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. You say, but I'm struggling. Could be. But Paul says, don't be deceived. Pornography is idolatry of self. It's an all-out assault on the glory of God on the same level of Satan's rebellion. It says, I deserve to be worshipped, therefore worship me. And the only audience you can find is yourself, and that's good enough for you. Then adulterers. This term refers specifically to married persons who indulge in any form of sexual acts outside of the marriage covenant. Why is it such a big deal? Because your marriage is sacred. It's a covenant between you and your spouse and your God. You may be tempted to say, but I'm not an adulterer. I just look at porn like everybody else. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, cares about everybody else. You're an adulterer. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If you have found yourself in the confusion of sexual sin and the deception of sexual sin where somehow a level of pornography becomes acceptable to you, Paul says don't be deceived. You need salvation. Because the wicked, those who practice unrighteousness, those who are identified as unrighteous and wicked, those who 
live their lives pursuing wickedness, they don't inherit the kingdom of righteousness. If that's you, don't be mad at me. Turn from your sin. Ask for help. Beg brothers. Beg somebody you don't know. Just come talk. Say, I'm caught. I've been deceiving myself, and I want to be set free. And I don't have any answers for you. But Christ has every answer because he is the only answer. If you don't, and you just think hanging around church is going to get you right with God, you're going to die in your sins, and you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Fourth, we run into the issue of what I believe is a pursuit of tact on the part of the translators, but they botch it. If you're reading the SV, you see two words translated with one phrase, men who practice homosexuality. It's fine, but it's missing something. The NSB does something similar. They miss something as well. Two words. They translate as effeminate nor homosexuals. The problem with both is that they're missing Paul's pursuit of making sure we understand that there is two parts to homosexuality. They're the men who are first passive in the homosexual act and second active in the homosexual act. That's why translators kind of run by this. Paul's explicit, Paul's clear, but Paul's kosher. His descriptions encompass all the realities of every form of gay or trans sex. If you see a Christian denomination or a Christian academic or a Christian publisher dispute this, they're at best ignorant, but they're probably liars with an agenda that comes straight from the pit of hell to make people feel comfortable in their wickedness and die in their sin. In Paul's context, he had to be clear. To climb the social ladder in Roman and Greek culture, sexual acts or favors were viewed part and parcel with your ability to complete your job. Young men were dominated by older men and allowed to gain responsibility with exchange of sexual favors. Then this process was repeated when the young men became older men. You say, well, it couldn't have been that bad in the church. Well, then my question is, why would Paul write it? And remember, he's writing to a church Maybe you say, well, it's not our problem today. According to cyber.harvard.edu, the fastest growing segment of production and consumption in pornography is gay and transvestite material. And according to a Gallup poll in November of 2020, the consumption of pornography in the church and the consumption of pornography outside the church, as far as content, is indistinguishable. And Paul says, time out. If this is who you are, if this is your life, then this is the habit of wickedness that is not fit for the kingdom of righteousness. Don't be deceived. The fullness of God's kingdom, the beauty of salvation, the wonder of eternal life with him, it's, it's just not for you. Now. And yet we have so-called Christian denominations saying that that kind of thinking is out of date culturally backwards, it's out of step, out of touch. Paul says it's from the pit. If you're pursuing sexual immorality, if you're pursuing sexual idolatry, if you're pursuing any form of homosexuality through physical relationship or in the privacy of your own home, viewing Satan's window you call a phone, don't be deceived, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not because you didn't do this or didn't do that, but because you rejected God's offer of his son and you chose sin. You didn't struggle. Verse 10 begins with thieves and greedy 
thieves are just active, greedy people. We've got to fast forward. Drunkards in verse 10 is a specific form of greed, just a pursuit of pleasure that eliminates the boundaries of our conscience. Then there's revilers. What defines you? That's what Paul's getting at. These things, what defines you? Swindlers, those are just thieves who don't steal in the open but undercover. Again, it's paradigmatic. It's not comprehensive. It's just showing the utter selfishness of those who are wicked. It's showing the self-worship of those who are wicked. It's showing the deception of those who have rejected the truth and bought the lie and think that God will let the wicked into his kingdom of righteousness. Ten forms of evil incompatible with the kingdom of God. If you're defined by these sins, the kingdom of God is not for you. But can we notice for a moment that this is not a call to evangelism? And yet, could there possibly be a more amazing call to evangelism than this? The wicked have no chance. The wicked have no hope. The wicked are bound under a deception that they cannot free themselves from. The church needs to be clear. All those not living in Christ will not be saved from Christ. He will come back and be their judge. But we have what they need to know him and live with him forever. We have the gospel, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Romans 1.16. But here we are in church, and Paul wrote this to a church. Ask yourself, why would Paul labor to define unrighteousness? Don't you think it's because there were those in the church in Corinth who did everything they could to make what they liked and their pet secret sins okay and acceptable in the family of God? They were culturally acceptable. Paul says they're deadly. What do we do with this Rolodex of rotten or this catalog of corruption or this inventory of evil? What do we do with it? Oftentimes we respond like this. Oh man, this is what puts people in jail. This kind of stuff this is where deliverance ministries make their money. This kind of stuff, this is what ruins marriages. This, these kind of people, keep your kids away from these kind of people. Isn't that how we think of a list like this? A friend, we should be more honest because as the text turns to us all in verse 11, what does this say? This is our biography. These are all our past sins. These are to be in fact, pre-conversion sins. These are not sins that remove salvation. These are not sins that keep us from salvation. They don't hold you at bay, but these are the sins that dominated your life and dominated your identity before salvation. See, the work of God brings truth and clarity. If these sins are still dominating and defining you, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because in verse 11, we see the work of God saves and the work of God transforms and such, verse 11, were some of you. But you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Praise God. Paul tells us who won't inherit the kingdom of God. And then he tells us who will inherit the kingdom of God. Those who God has saved and transformed, the kingdom of God is coming for them and they can't escape it. Notice first, who you are will not be who you were. Look at the 
verb in the first phrase, and such were some of you, a state of being verb for something that was in the past but is no longer. That's who you were. That's not who you are. Remember, he's talking to the Corinthians. These people have done it all. Paul says, praise God, that's no longer who you are. Their old state, not just sinful, but doomed for destruction. But here they are now, those who will inherit the kingdom of God. There are many folks who say they know Jesus and they practice these sins. The heartbreaking truth is someday they will meet the one they claim to know and he will look at them and say, depart from me, I never knew you. Your life may not be perfect, but if it's a pattern and a pursuit of holiness, that comes from the work of God. The salvation God provides brings the sanctification that God demands. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul says it like this, And such were some of you. In the past, pride destroyed, but... but Because God transformed, you're now restored. And such were some of you. Salvation and transformation are always linked together. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I love Peter's description there. And I have no idea why he says marvelous light. Darkness to light, that's good enough for me. Peter's like, it's marvelous. It's beyond what you can really imagine. There's something to it that's even better. From darkness to light. Paul says, instead of remaining as they were, God is transforming them into who they are. Second, who you are is saved by God's work. Only God can open the sin-blinded eyes of those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. But when God opens your eyes, what do you do? You see. Only God can take the wicked and make them righteous. But when God transforms us by his grace and mercy, what happens? We are, in fact, transformed. If you have not been transformed then what should that tell you about God's grace and mercy? You have not pursued it. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Okay. Chapter 2, verse 4 to 9. But God, being rich in mercy, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together. By grace you've been saved. Titus 3, 3, we were foolish, disobedient, we were slaves to sin. Titus 3, 4, and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The regeneration Paul describes by here is supernatural change produced by the Spirit of God. You were washed. It's amazing. It's mysterious. It's marvelous. But it has effects that are certain. It has effects that we can see. Jesus says it has fruit. It always produces 
Repentance, it always produces confession, confession of our sins, saying the same thing about our sin that God does. Repentance, turning from our sin towards God. It produces these things. Regeneration always produces a hatred of sin and a love for righteousness. Regeneration always produces a passion and a supreme love for God. Regeneration always brings a passion for the family of God. God saves us and transforms us, body and soul, intent and passions, all of it. God does the work of salvation in our heart. God brings about the work of salvation in our lives. And through salvation, we are being transformed. The sovereign work of God in salvation is our greatest and most precious hope and most precious evidence that our sanctification is upon us. James 1, 16 to 18 reminds us that we're saved by God's work. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James 1, 16 to 18. Would God save us only to leave us in our sin? You need to ask and answer that question. No. In part because of how he saves us, because God's salvation is never separate from his transformation. God saves and transforms. God's grace is the force behind our salvation and the force that drives our sanctification. Remember Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, To renounce ungodliness, the grace that saves us, trains us. It's one grace. It cannot save you and fail to transform you and train you. Has God's grace lost its power to train us toward righteousness? 1 Corinthians 6, 11, you were washed. Paul says at a point in time in the past, God washed you, a beautiful picture of God's saving work. Ephesians 5, 26, the love of Christ is described like this. He died and he gave himself for the church so that he might sanctify the church. How? By the washing of water with the word. You, friend, when you were saved, were positionally made pure and beautiful in the eyes of God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, an amazing product of our salvation is our relationship with God. And listen To what the preacher calls for us, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The preacher to the Hebrews, he's he's pointing back at Ezekiel's new covenant language saying, look, if you pursue Christ, this is what happens. Your conscience is sprinkled clean and our bodies are washed with pure water. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, you were washed. Who did that? God did. I understand we struggle with sin. We fight the holy war against the passions of our flesh. But friend, you were washed. Or you were not. Such were some of you, or some of you still are. The new birth is not something Jesus wonders about. It's something Jesus says is evident by the fruit that we bear. Regeneration brings the present nature of children of God to the past enemies of God. Such were some of you. Children don't live like enemies in God's family. When you were washed, you smelled like Christ. Paul describes the work of God in our salvation by saying we were sanctified. We often view this in light of progressive sanctification, which is a part of it, but I think here Paul's talking more about our position of being set apart for usefulness to God. 
Remember, to be sanctified is, is for God to take you from where you were and make you his for his purposes. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, the sovereign work of God in our salvation brings about what? Ephesians 2, 10, for we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're washed, we're sanctified. Third, we're justified. God has justified us positionally, perfectly, powerfully, finally, forever. We've been justified. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. This salvific work of of God is not ongoing, but accomplished eternally by Christ. Romans 3, Paul reminds that Christ died because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our sin needed punishment. God's holiness needed avenged. God's wrath deserved an object. And so Jesus was put forward. We know Jesus went willingly. Romans 3.25, he was put forward as a propitiation by his blood or a satisfaction by his blood to be received by faith. Where did the faith come from? God gave it. For who? For sinners. What kind of sinners? How about the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, the homosexuals, the thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, the revilers, the swindlers? All have sinned and are unable to be right with God on their own. Our good works offend God. Our efforts enrage God. Our best motives, they mock God. We cannot be right with God on our own. So Jesus came. Christ saw us in our sin. Christ saw God's love and he said, I will be what they need. Christ came. He lived a perfect life that you and I fail to live every single day. Christ died the death that you and I earn every single day. Christ died an atoning, substitutionary death that you deserved but he died it in your place. And then the grave couldn't hold him, so he rose that you might have final, perfect, full justification. So you could be, how could you say it? Washed, sanctified, and justified. Saints. How? How do you get that? Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You say, but surely there's more. Jonah 2, 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Friend, if there was more, you couldn't do it. If there was more, you'd mess it up. But God gave you what you needed, faith, and says, believe in me. And you'll have all you need so that God could be, Romans 3, 26, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is why Spurgeon said, my whole theology can be boiled down into four words. Jesus died for me. Who you are, friend, is saved by God's work. That's where our washing and regeneration come from. That's where our sanctification comes from. That's where our justification comes from, Christ's work. And Christ's work transforms our hearts and our desires as well. Maybe say, but pastor, I've been around the block and down the alley. You don't know what I've done. People see me and they, they know who I was. They still look at me as the floozy. They look at me like the adulterer. They look at me like the gambler. They look at me like the thief. Who cares? How's God look at you? 
Don't worry about your siblings. Worry about your father. What does he say? It's my son. She's my daughter. Such were some of you. He takes us from wicked to righteous. He preserves us as righteous for himself. Notice the end of verse 11, the fine print on the contract. That's a beautiful thing. You were washed, sanctified, and justified. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Understand who you are now is secured by God. If this is true of you, that such were some of you, then you're held tightly in the grasp of God. In the name means our security is Christ's character and authority. The Lord, the Lord of glory. Jesus, our Savior, Christ, our King, and the Spirit, his seal of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And it's all of our God. Who's God? Our God. From wicked to righteous, How? the work of God. From sinner to saint, how? The work of God. From war to peace, how? The work of God. From enmity to family, how? You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Do you have faith? If you have faith, then this is you. And confidence in his work, because confidence and faith in his work come from fearing him and come from trusting that what he has done, I can't mess up. If you don't trust the work of God, then all our efforts in fighting for holiness are putting lipstick on a pig, painting over peeling paint. We need the confidence that we are in the family of God, our God. Next week, what will our response be? In the fear of God to the work of God? Well, you'll, you'll find that we do respond to God and we Work and labor and fight for holiness. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, though, is our confidence. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work and you will complete it. Bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The work of God enables and empowers a believer's pursuit of purity. Let's pray and you'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for these truths that we who have faith that Jesus is what we couldn't be, took what we deserved and gave us what we did not deserve. That's all you ask of us. What a glorious thing that your work is our salvation. And this work of our salvation is the foundation for our sanctification because those whom you save, you transform. So help us to believe Help us to labor. Help us to tremble. Help us to fear you and live for you. That we might one day find our position as genuine, real saints, inheriting your kingdom forever with you. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.